Praise the Lord, everybody. Boy, I like that song, God Only Knows. That's a really good song right there, you know? It has a nice sound to it, nice feel to it. But God only knows what's going on, what's really going on. Well, this morning, um, <clears throat> I want to I start the sermon by showing a video. The video is one of our br- brothers speaking, Paul Mayo. Paul Mayo uh, heads up our unity ministry here at the church. And uh, he put together his thoughts. And I really want everyone to really tune in, focus in on what he's saying. It'll be the springboard for the sermon. Now, every, every month, as you know, uh, the Lord has given me a topic to speak on during that month. This is a new month, and we have a new topic for the month. The topic is relationships. And the title of today's sermon is Horizontal Love based on John 13, 34 to 35. You may, may want to get that out and get it ready. But anyway, give a, give a few minutes uh, as our brother Paul uh, shares his heart. Good morning, church. It is a pleasure to be with you on this first Sunday. I thank Pastor Rick for allowing me to lead the unity ministry. Through his leadership and faithfulness, he has been an inspiration in supporting me to share the word to our congregation. I would like to share the story of Paul with you. In these turbulent times, we are witnessing things we've never seen before. Through our faith, we have been taught to believe that things will get better through the Lord. For a few of us in the congregation of African descent, we live in a world that continually separates us from the same opportunities afforded to whites through education, jobs, housing, health care, etc. I live in a world that continually seeks to separate us from the opportunities and access afforded to whites. In my life, I've always been a part of the church. That was my safe haven. The church was a place of refuge in a time of crisis. It was a place of peace. It was a place of love. It was a place of comfort because the people in the church knew me. I felt like I belonged. We all desire that feeling of belonging. It confirms acceptance in a group. We value the same things, especially life. I would like to share the story of Paul and his conversion. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, and he knew the Bible. But he believed that Christians were dangerous and a threat to Judaism. Therefore, he persecuted Christians. He murdered them without mercy. Paul was not alone in his efforts. There were others that joined him and believed in his cause. However, God stopped him in his tracks on the Damascus Road. Paul needed a change of heart, and only God could do that. How did God change Paul's heart? He removed his sight. Why did God blind him if he needed to change his heart? How did God change Paul's heart? He removed his sight. Why did God blind him if he needed to change his heart, you may ask? I think the reason God blinded him because Paul wasn't able to see the destruction he was causing. This reminds me of what's going on today. As we look around the world, I see protesting, you see looting. I see unarmed black people being killed by the police, you may see lawlessness. I see nine Christians who were gunned down in their church. Then I heard silence from the white churches. But through our eyes and our values, we only see what we want to see. For some, 
They may not see the misery, hurt, and pain African Americans have suffered since they have been brought to this country. We have a tendency to believe the stories we tell ourselves instead of looking at what's going on in front of you, much like Paul. Once God removed the scales from Paul's eyes, he had a renewed vision of life. Until Paul's conversion, little had been done about carrying the gospel to non-Jews. Philip had preached in Samaria and to an Ethiopian man, Cornelius, a Gentile, was converted under Peter and in Antioch and in Syria. Some Greeks had joined believers. Paul was bringing new people to Christian. After Paul was converted, he didn't just sit there. He didn't just pray. He went out and spread the gospel. So how can Christians today follow Paul's example? Ask God for a heart that has empathy, sympathy, and compassion for those who have been mistreated. Pray for the conversion like Paul on the Damascus Road. Once the scales have been removed from your eyes and your heart has been changed, you can see other people as equals. I wonder when Paul was persecuting Christians, did they have a slogan back then, all Jews matter, as opposed to all Christians matter. As we move forward, I hope you have a conversion, a change of heart, a walk down the Damascus Road. I hope you will join me as an African-American man, a Christian, and a member of NLC, that you will mourn with me, march with me, and join me as we pray for God to remove racism from all facets of life. Will you join me? Lastly, I want to thank those men who reached out to me this week and made me feel like I belong. Thank you, Pastor Rick, Pastor Bill, and Brother Wayne. God bless. Amen. Amen. Well, turn with me in your Bible, please, to John chapter 13. I'm going to read two verses that you probably are familiar with already, but verses 34 and 35. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Father God, Lord, bless this sermon, Lord. I know you put it in my heart. Help me to share it the way you want, Lord. Anoint me, anoint my tongue and my words to bring forth the word the way you want it to come out today. Let it fall upon ears that desire to hear. Let your Holy Spirit take it and teach us what we need to know. And Lord, in all this, please be glorified and honored and pleased with your people today. And let your people be a little bit more uh, ready to do what you just told the disciples to do, to love one another. I surrender it to you, Lord. I pray for your touch to be upon it all and upon all of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So this month we'll be talking about relationships. Uh, today the, the title of the sermon is Horizontal Love. Uh, this after a week or a month or a year or years of seeing our nation in turmoil uh, in the wake of several violent attacks by police or civilians against our citizens, right now focusing on black citizens. The church must arise. 
We need to keep the families of George Floyd and Armand Arbery and Breonna Taylor in our prayers, as well as other people who have died and are suffering during this time. It's not just those three families. There's countless numbers of people. But the Word of God makes it very clear. The Word of God says in Romans, to mourn with those that mourn. Can you feel that? Can you feel that? Because our brother Paul is grieving and mourning right now as an African-American brother. He's, I need to feel his pain. We need to feel his pain. The scripture also says in 1 Corinthians 12 that uh, Paul likening the body of Christ or the church to a physical body where, where we're not all a hand or a foot, but we're all kind of connected together. But he says when one suffers, we all suffer. So I want to look at this through the eyes of race, culture, ethnicity, etc., and see what is God calling us to do in this situation. I think most of you are aware that when Jesus said these words, um, he was at the last, what we call the Last Supper, the Passover meal. He had already talked to the apostles about, um, they were arguing who was the greatest, greatest among them. He demonstrated who was the greatest by washing their feet. He already predicted uh, Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial. Um, they instituted the Lord's Supper at, that last, at the Last Supper. Um, and then he said, he said, this new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And so I want to I talk about this love for one another today. Um, Jesus talked a lot about loving one another. There is some portion of the Old Testament about loving one another, but it's not really emphasized as much in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Jesus frequently talked about loving your neighbor and loving people different than you. That was part of his mission. But in Matthew 23, we, we, we read one little account, Matthew 22, rather, verse 37. Someone kind of chirps in from the crowd, Hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? You know, people sometimes will try to test Jesus or push his buttons, so to speak. And, and he responded and say, well, the greatest commandment is that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it, but love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Everything comes down to a vertical love for God and a horizontal love for other people. So, when I think about the, the vertical love, I think about we, we, the order is so important. We could never have a horizontal love unless we have a vertical love. This may be one of the problems in our culture of people trying to love each other and get along with each other without having a relationship with God or having a poor relationship with God. But once we have a good, healthy relationship with God we can then begin to process. See, when we're close to God, when we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, guess what? We get His heart. We see with His eyes. We feel with His feelings. So the way He looks at humanity is, guess what? The way we look at humanity. But it's got to start in the church. Think of this with me. There are two principles here. Uh, vertical love. As God has loved us, so we must love him back. That's number one. As he has loved us, we've got to love him back. John 3.16 says, you all know it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? So now that he's done that for us, guess what? We've got to give our life back to him. 
It says in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've got to die to ourselves now. He died for us, we've got to die to ourselves. That's our vertical relationship. So when he says in Matthew 22, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, absolutely essential. We can't do anything horizontally unless we have this vertical relationship with the Lord. It's an ongoing relationship. It's a developing relationship. But it's the most important relationship that we'll ever have. And then horizontally, John 13, 34, which which we just read, love one another as I have loved you. Sacrificially, I've loved you. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, after the, the little passage about if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. He says, because now that you're a new creation, God has given to you the ministry of reconciliation. You are now empowered to be an ambassador for Christ, as though though God were pleading through you, the church, be reconciled unto God. So we, we have to have this vertical relationship with God ongoing. And with that vertical relationship, we understand the mind of God, the heart of God, the disposition of God. We can discern godly thoughts and godly things when we evaluate a situation because we have this vertical relationship with our Heavenly Father. And because we have that, we can then begin to work out across this way among people, beginning with people within the church. Now, you know that Jesus came to preach the, the, the kingdom of God. It says in, in uh, Mark 1.14, when John the Baptist was put in prison... It says Jesus began to preach the kingdom of God. He, he was a preacher. He proclaimed the things of God. In Luke 4, 43, uh, Jesus said, I must preach this gospel of the kingdom of God to other cities also. For this reason or for this purpose, I was sent. And so he came proclaiming and preaching the word of God, the kingdom of God. But I want to tell you something. There are some things that Jesus did in the gospels that on the surface had nothing to do with the kingdom of God. But it had everything to do with horizontal relationships. And that's what I want to talk about today. So Jesus, he came to proclaim and to show people the way. His ultimate act was dying on the cross, yes. But those three years of ministry, he did countless little things that we, would, we could easily pass over without thinking about it. But I want to bring them out today to think about how we can emulate him and we can begin to develop a horizontal love within our fellowship, within our families, within our community. But again, we could never do that without a vertical relationship with God. That is number one most important thing. Let's assume that we have that, okay? Let's just assume that we have that. I want to give you three areas and then I want to try to make some application to the church. The first area is this, is that Jesus connected with people. And, and see, we need to connect with people. If we want to present the gospel, we need to have the right to do that. And what I mean is we need to have a relationship with the person to do that. But Jesus connected with people. Now, I, you could turn to these passages if you want. Um, you probably are familiar with them. The first passage for this one is in Matthew 19. Verses 13 through 15. This is the setting. Jesus is sitting there somewhere, and all these kids come running up to him. 
So the parents brought the kids to see Jesus. And uh, I, I pictured in my mind, maybe I saw a painting of this somewhere along the line, or maybe in a movie I saw. I pictured Jesus sitting there having a good time with these kids. I pictured some of the kids pulling each other's hair and hitting each other and fooling around, and Jesus is there, and everything's, everything's good. And the disciples come over, thinking they're doing the right thing, and they shoo them away and say, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Can you picture it? And so the parents brought the kids to see Jesus, and they're happy, but now, now they're saying, oh, man, I guess this wasn't the right thing to do. And Jesus says to his disciples, no, 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 don't do that. Let the children come to me, for of such is the kingdom of God. And, and so, in, in, in a real spiritual sense, yeah, the kingdom of God is like little children. But in a real practical sense, what Jesus was saying was, kids, I love you. Parents, your kids are important to me. And you're important to me. And he laid his hands on them and prayed over them. And he loved them. And what he's, what he's saying in doing that is, is that you're valuable, he reached out and he broke, maybe it was the tradition of the day for kids not to touch or not to be around uh, teachers of the law like Jesus was. But this has nothing to do with doctrine, nothing to do with sin or spiritual truth, but it has everything to do with a horizontal love and relationship. So within the body of Christ, we would do well to be thinking about how do we connect with people? How, what are we saying to people by our body language or our actions or our attitudes? Here's another example. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 42. You know the story, the story of the leper. Here's, here's, this, here's the setting. Now, the lepers didn't live in the city anymore. They were dirty, they were sick, they were diseased. They were disgusting, actually. So they set up leper colonies for them to live outside of the city. Well, apparently he heard Jesus was in town. He escaped from the leper colony, and he falls at Jesus' feet, kneeling down, imploring him, Lord Jesus, heal me, help me, cleanse me. He didn't want to know about doctrine. He didn't want to know the, the five laws of salvation or whatever. He wanted to be healed. He wanted to be clean. It says in verse number 41 that Jesus, seeing this situation, was moved with compassion. Now, can we just think about that for a minute? We need, to be, we need to allow ourselves to be moved with compassion instead of judging someone right off the bat. Jesus was moved with compassion, and the first thing he did was he laid out his hand and touched the man. Well, you don't touch lepers. That was a bad thing to do. It wasn't, it wasn't normal to touch a leper. But Jesus knew what the man needed at the time. He was connecting with him. Here's a man that was sick, um, diseased, desperate, frantic, no voice in the community, no worth, no relationships, and Jesus touches him. And what he's saying by touching him is, I see you, I love you, I value you, I'm with you. Now, We'll tie this into the whole issues at hand right now. But when our brother Paul gave his word today, there might be some of you sitting here, maybe some of you listening, that don't understand what he's talking about. Paul said he sees this, what's going on. I, I watch the news. I see what's going on. He sees people demonstrating. Other people see the same thing and see people looting and rioting. 
Same thing that they're looking at. What I'm trying to bring to the table is, can we have a little compassion and under understanding where somebody is coming from? Jesus knew those kids, man, they, they, needed, they needed an authority figure's touch on their lives. Those parents needed to know that their kids were important. He didn't give them any spiritual teaching. He laid his hands on them and loved them and prayed for them. Jesus didn't even give any, any spiritual truth to the leper. He touched him and said, I'm with you. I see you. I feel for you. So in the, in the culture of racism, and I say, that with, <clears throat> I say that with a little bit of, I don't know, a little bit of something in my heart. I guess I don't want to admit it, but I have to admit it. We live in a culture of racism. We live in a culture of skepticism and uncertainty regarding everybody, from politicians to police to even clergy. But if we're going to make a difference in the world, what I'm saying is <clears throat> we as a church must learn how to connect with people. Jesus connected with people. And so in our, in our church, that means that we would have to greet people we don't know. We would have to greet people from maybe a different country or maybe have an accent that's different than ours. Uh, maybe they look different than us. But can I tell you something? The white people of this congregation have to make the first move. It's simply the way it works. The, whoever the majority is, if this was a different culture or a different setting, for instance, I was in Nigeria some years ago, and I was one of four or five white people in the whole place with 80,000 African people. It was an amazing situation to be in. But I was looking for someone to welcome me and greet me and say everything's all right here. They were, it wasn't my, I mean, they were the majority. The majority always sets the tone for everybody else. So, so yeah, think about it. Now, I, I realize, and let me, let me preface this, there, there are going to be some things that I say today that some people may not agree with. It's okay not to agree with me. But I'm trying to tell you from the Word of God how Jesus crossed over barriers to make connections. And we would do well to emulate what Jesus did and how he did things. I think in that culture, by the way, it really wasn't normal for kids and adults to interact like that. He broke the, the, the social norms. It definitely was not right to interact with a leper. But Jesus was making a connection with, with people that were different than he was. So, whether they're African Americans or, or Afro-Latinos or Hispanic people or Asian people or Native American people... You, you never know how it is until you turn the tables. You'll never know how it is for a person of color to walk in this church unless you go to a church that's not like this church. And we're very happy we have a diversity here, but we're majority white, absolutely majority white. And we're thankful for every, everybody. But if we were to go to a church that's predominantly black or predominantly Hispanic and you're white, you would feel, you would feel either welcome or not welcome. And everyone that walks through these doors has those same feelings. It's only natural that they would. So in Jesus' time, you know, he, he welcomed the children, he welcomed the leper. But in our day, it'll be, it'll be people of color. It'll be maybe people with health issues. And I, I, I know, and you know, that everybody in the world needs connection. Everybody th thrives 
to be needed and welcomed. And it's not always by, you know, I'm trying to make the point, it's not always through the preaching of the word, but he's preaching the word in a different way by connecting with people. That's part of the gospel. He's demonstrating how to connect with people in, the, in real life, reaching out. Now, in our, right now with COVID-19, it's not a good idea to touch people. Someone, I said this morning, smile at somebody. Somebody said, they don't know if you're smiling because you're wearing a mask. I said, well, they'll see the creases in the side of your face and they'll, they'll see the sparkle in your eye. But I'm saying, you know what? Get somebody's cell number. Become a friend on Facebook. You see, Jesus' Jesus's horizontal love was about connecting with people. Can we begin to think about how do we connect with people? The second area that Jesus demonstrates to us is Jesus engaged people. Engagement is a step up from connection. Engagement is personal investment into someone's life. It's a step uh, uh, beyond just a, a casual connection with someone. I think most of us are familiar with John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Great story, great man. You could preach 25 sermons from that one chapter, guaranteed. But he meets this woman at the well. She's a Samaritan. Uh, she's not just any woman. She had five husbands before, living with a man now. Uh, Samaritan was an issue at the time. Jesus is, uh, Jesus is Jewish. She's a Samaritan. She's half Jewish, half Gentile. She's considered unclean, unholy, and unworthy. And they're totally different than each other. You know, Jesus is a teacher. She's an unholy person. Uh, he eats kosher food. Who knows what in the world she eats. The holidays are different. Where they worship is different. How they worship is different. Uh, different ethnicity, different accents, different dress code. They probably have different types of hair and all that stuff. But in John 4, 7, Jesus says to this woman, give me a drink. Has nothing to do with the, with the Bible. Nothing to do with whatever. Just give me, give me a drink. He's engaging her. It's not just, how are you? It's like, I want to get involved. And so, in, in that, in that, right at that moment, you know, they're so unlikely to be connected together. But when he's saying, can you get me a drink? He's really saying, I see you. I recognize you. I think you might be able to help me out here. I want to have a, somewhat of a relationship with you. And, and you know what else he's saying? I actually like you. Because I'm including you in my life. I like you. And he knew all about her. He knew her rap sheet, so to speak. And he engaged her anyway. It's like us saying to someone, Hey, how are you? Nice outfit. Nice shirt. Glad you're here today. Is this the first time you came? Or have you been here before? And, and, and that, can you give me a drink? Drink led to a serious conversation about the living waters of the Holy Spirit, which led to her disclosing her sinful past and receiving the Lord's forgiveness. And, and the story concludes in verses 41 and 42 that after this woman has this interaction with Jesus, she goes and tells everybody. All her townspeople from Samaria come to where Jesus was. He spends two more days with these people, these unclean, unholy, immoral people. 
He was engaging them in conversation. And so we would do well to engage people in conversation and in life in general. To engage means to enlist or to include. At least try to. I found this over the years. My attempts of engagement have failed many times. But a month later or a year later, I may get a call or a visit from someone that remembers my act of kindness a year ago. They remember the smile. They remember the invitation. They remember the concern. They may not react immediately because they don't know what to do with it. But they remember and they hopefully will come back to it. And if you look at John 4 verse 9, the woman's first reaction to Jesus when he said, give me a drink of water... She said, just to paraphrase verse 9, she's saying, are you kidding me? What do I have to do with you? And what do you have to do with me? We have nothing in common here. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. You're a man, I'm a woman. You know, you're a teacher, I'm all messed up, and so on and so forth. But Jesus pursues her. And Jesus engages her, and he talks with her. So, as she says to Jesus, "What, what what do I have to do with you? What do you have to do with me? That would be like us saying... A white guy, a white man, a white person saying to a black person, what do I have to do with you? And a black person saying to a Hispanic person, what do I have to do with you? And a Hispanic person saying to an Asian person, what do I have to do with you? And an Asian person saying to a Native American, what do I have to do with you? And a Native American saying to a white person, what do I have to do with you? You're never going to know until you try. But the way I see it, we have a vertical love with God. He loves everybody, by the way. He's unspoken truth. He's expecting us to reach out across these barriers and love and embrace people and engage people. So we, we would do well to somehow bridge the gap and not be afraid of engaging people. See, I, I don't want to just say these words today. I mean, I, I want to say these words. I don't want them to just be words. Because I think I, like most pastors in the country, most leaders in the country, if I could say this, I would think most African-American people in the country are saying, I'm fed up with all the words and all the promises. I want to see some action. If I could just say it that way. I want to see somebody do something. You know, and this, this is my sphere of influence right here, the church. This, a little bit in the community. But I, I'm speaking to the church right now. We have a golden opportunity to step out of our comfort zone and be like Christ to people around us. It's going to take a lot of self, self-death to do that. It is. It's going to take a lot of Holy Ghost power to step out of our comfort area. So anyway, Jesus Jesus connected with people. Jesus engaged people. And the third one is this. Um, You could look at it if you want, uh, Mark chapter 7. The story of the Syrophoenician woman. I'll tell you the story. But this third point is, is this. Jesus discerned people's hearts. He was always discerning people's hearts. The rich young ruler he discerned and knew he wasn't right. 
This woman he discerned, and, she, and he realized she was right. But it's this very unusual story to me. Let me tell you the story. Jesus is traveling, like he, like he frequently did. He's in an area north of Judea, north of Jerusalem. Not that far away, but it was far enough away to be in a different culture. It was predominantly Greek and Gentile people. Uh, it was in the area of Tyre and Sidon, which is the area of Syria and Lebanon today, if you could picture a map of the Middle East. And Jesus is in somebody's house. And so it's assumed he's in a Jewish person's home, because his ministry was to the Jews primarily. And as he's there, word got out in that, in that Gentile Greek-speaking community that Jesus was in town. So this mother of a daughter hears about it. She comes banging on the door. It says she fell down at his feet and kept asking him to intervene and heal her daughter who was oppressed with, it, with an evil spirit or an oppressive spirit. And so there's drama here. There's real drama. Jesus is just like, like many times. He goes somewhere to relax and just kind of have some, some time with his friends. And he gets interrupted. So he's interrupted, and she keeps banging on the door, you know, pleading, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so he's in a situation where he has to respond to this person. She's not Jewish. She's, she's Greek and, and speaks Greek, Syrophoenician, probably a different color, a different race, a different ethnicity, for sure. And, and he, he says to her, listen to what he says to her. I'm going to paraphrase verse number 27. It's not right for me to neglect the children and feed the little dogs. Whoa. Jesus is testing her. Absolutely testing her. What does he mean by that? So she's not Jewish. He's got a Jewish audience. She comes barging in wanting help. He says, no, I, I, I have to feed the children of Israel. It's not good for me to take what's for the children of Israel and give it to you little dogs, you Gentiles. Ooh. Ooh, that was harsh. She says, but Lord, even the little dogs will eat the crumbs from underneath the table. And when he hears that, he says, what great faith you have. Go home, your daughter's healed already. And so in that interaction, I believe Jesus was discerning her heart, her attitude, her mind, her, her, her place, you know, how she thought about things, how she processed things. She was willing to take anything from God, even the crumbs, the leftover from the Jewish people. And Jesus, you know, he could have made a judgment based on her appearance, her accent, her, her, her complexion or whatever, her hairstyle or whatever. Her, her, her franticness, her drama, and just cut her off right like that, not even giving give her the time of day. But he listened to what she had. To, he engaged her enough to listen to what she had to say. And so Jesus' love, you know, horizontally was taking time to listen to people. You may run into people that look nothing like you, don't dress like you, don't talk like you, don't have the same life experience as you. And you already have them sized up. But you don't have a clue what they're really all about. Jesus took time to discern the heart of the person. That's the lesson I learned from that. This is a horizontal love based upon a vertical love. As God has loved us, we need to love and respect others as well. 
So those three areas, connection, engagement, and discernment, I think are really very important. But as we always try to do, we try to make application to our church and our life here in Haverhill. So we cannot deny that there's racial tension, justifiably so. We cannot deny that there's health concerns with this COVID-19, justifiably. There's concerns about the looting and the rioting and the demonstrating and the destruction that's happening. There's uh, police issues. There's authority issues. And there's a systemic problem in our country. I've heard that word a lot lately. Systemic. What does that mean? It means something in the system is wrong. And uh, I'll probably say a few things that some of you, I don't know how you feel about it. But if I'm looking at life through my brother Paul's eyes, or another African-American person, or person of color, I would probably see things a little bit different than how I have been seeing things. Someone had said recently that when the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution was written, there was an allowance in that document that kept black people less than white people. I never knew that. But it makes sense because slavery continued until 100 years later. Systemic problem. It's, It's ingrained in our culture that people of color are less than white people. That's what that means. Thankfully, there's been amendments to the Constitution. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was wonderful. A lot of amendments, equal rights. See, right now, it's not even about legislation. It's not. All the laws are done. Everything's out there. All the legalities have been made, as far as I know. What has to change is people's hearts. That's the issue. And see, see where the issue of the church is so important... We need to proclaim this vertical relationship with God, but it's not only a vertical relationship. That's half of it. The other half is this way. And this is where all the problems are. It's not this way. How many people say, oh, I'm good with God. I just hate everybody else. Wrong way to be. As a Christian, you can't be like that. You know, especially if you you named a certain races of people in that sentence. And people do that. Oh, but I love God. I just hate them. No. No. God forbid. No. So just three areas. I put them on the screen up there. The first area is we need to have compassion. When Paul spoke, I remember that shooting in South Carolina and the the black African-American church, what, two years ago or so? I forget what it was. Charleston. And all I remember is a white guy went in there. He was deranged. He joined a Bible study. Everyone welcomed him and greeted greeted him as Christians would do. He then pulls out a gun and starts killing people. My reaction was, this guy was nuts. He was crazy. He was... But see, in the black community, it wasn't only that. It was that a white guy went into a black church to do it. Why didn't he go to a white church to do it? Who knows? I'm just saying we need to have some compassion here and understand some of the anger and the frustration and the angst that our brothers and sisters within the greater context of the church are feeling. Those people are our brothers and sisters, for goodness sakes. 
Instead of saying, just, you know, and when, when Paul said the white church remained silent, I was trying to think, did, we, did I mention it? I don't remember if I mentioned it. I hope I mentioned it. I should have mentioned it. We should have had prayer for those dear people. But what I'm saying is, if we have compassion, we're tuning in to people. Now, personally, I, I think I, I, I'm a compassionate person. I, I do. Um, I can be more compassionate at times. I grew up in a I grew up in an affluent community in the suburbs of New York, Rye, New York. But the street I grew up on was one of the few streets. There were probably three or four streets in the city at that time that were integrated. I'm talking 50s and 60s. So I grew up in an integrated neighborhood. So I always had a kind of a an empathy for people of color. I grew up there. It was, no, it was never a problem. Never a problem. Uh, my son, our son married an African-American woman. She had two kids from another marriage, so they're, they're African-American, but they're my grandkids. And they have two of their own, and they're biracial. They're my grandkids. And so a few years ago, when there was a lot of talk about the South, and I, I have cousins in South Carolina and Tennessee, and I wasn't particularly close to them over the years because I'm from New York, but I, I knew they were my cousins. We'd visit once in a while. And I know what the con- Confederate flag looks like. I went to school in the South. I went to college in North Carolina. And at that time, a lot of students had Confederate flags in their room. I never thought much about it. But to an African-American person, that Confederate flag means that's, that's, you want, you're fighting for slavery. I never really thought about that until, you know, somewhat recently. But this is what I mean by being compassionate. You know, a few years ago, there was a big, big uh, problem in the South where some people wanted to take down the monuments to the Civil War leaders at the time, you know, that fought or led the Confederacy against the Union soldiers. There, there, there's, there's monuments down there that honor them. And one day I had an epiphany, thinking about my African-American daughter-in-law and my grandchildren that are black or biracial, and I thought, what do, what do they feel about that? I, did, I never did ask them. But it just hit me that why would a culture honor people that wanted to keep slavery going? That was my issue. And I know my white brothers think I'm nuts by saying that. My black brothers think I'm a hero. But I have compassion and I understand the problem. I don't know what to do about it. It is history. But on the other hand, I don't see a statue for Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, as a great person who killed our president. I don't see, I don't see people being honored that do bad things. That was a bad, the Civil War was a bad thing. And so I'm just saying, I don't know the answer, but I, what I'm saying is we need to have compassion for people. Well, you think, you think all these riots and stuff is because of one cop putting his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight and a half minutes? That's totally symptomatic of a million other things that are now coming to the surface. So, number one, we, we really need to be compassionate and at least listen to what people are saying. 
And again, in our country, in our church, in this church, white is the majority. I think it has to start with white people. I include myself in that. Second thing is having discussions. You know, my, my mother and father always taught us to respect people of all different races and ethnic groups. And we always did. I always thought we did. I remember when we were in college, when Pam and I were saved, we were in college, and uh, went, I went back to school in North Carolina, and we were part of a Christian fellowship group, and there were many African Americans in the fellowship group. And I didn't think much about it, but I invited, we invited a couple over to our house for dinner one night. I don't know if you remember, Pam. But I remember their names. I, it was a beautiful time. But in that culture, this is in the late 70s, early 80s, in the culture where we were, that was so unusual for a white couple to have a black couple at their house. And you know what? I think it's still unusual for the most part. But until we could have discussion and talk, like... Like, how do you know where someone's coming from until you talk to them? It's totally racist to, to have someone pay before you even have a dialogue with them. Well, the way they look, the way they act. Whoa. Jesus would always interact. He was always looking for a conversation. And, and let me say this. It's okay to say I was wrong. It's okay to say... I'm sorry. It's okay to say, I hear you, but I don't understand you. It's okay to say that. There's a lot of things white people won't understand or black people won't understand, but we can at least listen and dialogue together. That's what I'm saying. So I'm thinking maybe we need to develop within the church a a ministry called assimilation ministry. See, I always thought that when we have church and people get saved, it's, you know, color and race are out the window. It doesn't matter anymore. We're all one in Christ. Hallelujah. I'm an idealist in that way. But in reality, not happening. So maybe we need to develop an assimilation ministry that people, the, the ministry of that group will be to assimilate people of color into the church. When I hear people tell me that they have felt racism in our church, my heart breaks. When I hear people tell me that no one knows what they're really all about because no one really takes time to talk to them. My heart breaks. And we all love Jesus. Hallelujah. We're all good this way. We're not so good this way. So, discussions. Martin Luther King said we must be intentional or else nothing's going to get done. We could have every good intention of doing all these wonderful things, but unless someone actually does it, it's not going to happen. And I know the pastor leads the way, but the pastor needs help in most churches. Jesus took time to talk with people. We would do well to make time. We can't do it right now at church because we can't have coffee together, but sooner or later, when things get back to somewhat normal, We need to have some discussions with people that are different than us. And the last last thing is that we need to take time. Jesus took time with the kids. 
Did he really want to have a bunch of kids climbing on him at the moment? I don't know, but he took time to let it happen. Did he really have time to interact with the leper that was so sick and diseased and so troubled? He took time. Did he really have time to spend two or three days with the Samaritan people? He made time. Did he have time to be interrupted by the Syrophoenician woman? He was just trying to have a little fellowship in somebody's house, but he made time. Made time for Bartimaeus. Made time for uh, Zacchaeus, for the rich young ruler, all these different people. He always made time for people. I mean, in a grander sense, didn't he make time for you? Doesn't he make time for me? Uh, Absolutely, he makes time. So we need to make time for this thing to be worked out and ironed out. So... Right now, uh, there's been protests in front of the Haverhill Police Department all week long. I don't know who's involved. I, I don't know much about it. Uh, right now, there's a, a march is being planned for next Saturday, a peaceful march against violence. We've had, we've had that in Haverhill. I've marched. I've been, to, I've, been to all, I've been to everything. And it's good. It's good. I'll send out more information about that so that you know if you want to go. Is that going to be at the football stadium next Saturday, 12.30? But what I'm saying is it's got to go beyond that. There's a great program on the Haverhill cable TV station. I think it was on Wednesday night. Civic leaders, politicians, high school guidance counselors meeting together. It was televised. They had a great discussion, great discussion. But me personally, I'm tired of discussions. I don't know what to say. We've, we've talked this out since 1955. I mean, how much more talking can we do? You know, we know what we have to do. We just have to do it now. Do our part of it. So I'll close with the scripture we started with. Horizontal love. A new commandment I give you. That you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So I realize this is a sobering message, isn't it? It's a sobering message. But I want to encourage you, within your world, within your life, within your environment, you can make a difference. You're called to make a difference. But you've got to step out of your comfort zone. Let God use you to bring some healing in our community. Amen.